0: And I think that in the case of international education, we need those moments and we need more people to go back to their hometowns and their grade schools and say, look, you might not know this even exists, but it's there. And I'm just like you and I did it.
1: Hi, I'm Jessica.
2: And I'm Girish.
1: And this is the Destiny Benders podcast, where we explore the impact of international education on the lives of students and professionals from across the globe. It's a podcast for international educators, by international educators, and about international educators.
2: And in each episode, we'll be meeting with Destiny Benders of our industry. We'll look beyond the job title and really get to know the people whose mission it is to change lives and bend destinies. Our guest today is Troy Peden, founder of GoAbroad.com. Troy, my brother, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Hi, Troy. It's really nice to meet you, and I'm excited to hear your story today.
0: Great. Thank you.
2: So, Troy, you've been around. uh, You know, like I was telling Jessica, you're one of the coolest cats in town that I know. Uh, You've done some amazing work out there, but I don't think a lot of people really know where you came from, how you got started, the whole Go Abroad story, and then all the work that you've been doing since. And I know you were just in Ukraine, so please share with us your life journey.
0: Sure. So, uh, first of all, I'm an unlikely international education participant or professional. I came from a small rural town in the Midwest in the United States. My parents are uneducated, and uh, the uh, possibility that I might spend a good portion of my life abroad didn't seem to be uh, in the story. Uh, But I will tell you that my first trips abroad, volunteering abroad, Uh, broadened my perspective, changed my attitude, changed my life, changed my politics, changed my ideals. I ended up um, working with international students uh, doing some of the things that you've done. Um, My first graduate program was deaf education. I ended up volunteering uh, with a Buddhist organization resettling handicapped refugees from Asia into Europe. Uh, I went on to study international studies and I did a master's thesis in international student academic success and retention as it related to acculturation. So, it's, this has been my life and, and my passion. And goabroad.com has uh, over a million visitors a month looking for meaningful travel opportunities. But we also have a 501c nonprofit foundation, Goabroad Foundation. And we support uh, grassroots organizations around the world doing a variety of incredible things, including teaching music to street children in Uganda, pairing uh, women who are exiled in uh, Rwanda with uh, children who are HIV positive. Uh, We've built community centers in Southeast Asia and other things. And as you mentioned, I've just been um, about two months in Poland and Ukraine And uh, the foundation has partnered with some other organizations, and we have a convoy of about nine vans that have been bringing aid in and bringing refugees out of uh, central and western Ukraine into Poland, uh, Germany, and beyond. So that's my long
2: story. Sorry about that. Not at all. I don't think it's long enough. I mean, I think you skimmed through a whole bunch of stuff. So I want to dig a little bit deeper. I know you okay. talked about growing up in the Midwest, right? Tell a little bit more. So growing up, what did you think you were going to be? Like everybody's an accidental international educator, right? For, for the right. most part. And that's what right. you said. So growing up, uh, what were you thinking? And then when you went to college, like how did that all happen?
0: I don't think uh I don't think college was really on the horizon for me i don't think i imagined it was possible and i think it just sort of happened and you know i did grow up reading books about explorers and things that little kids in the midwest read about so i i had some uh desire i guess to to know the world uh and uh step by step it sort of fell in my lap
1: and you said you grew up in the midwest where was that
0: Uh, A small town called Winnebago, Illinois, about a thousand people in the cornfields of uh, near the Wisconsin-Illinois border.
1: Where did the idea for Go Abroad come from? I mean, you Mm -hmm. start, is that, was that your first foray into creating a, a business or a life out of international education? How did, how did that get started? Where did the idea spring from?
0: yeah so i was working on a a phd at the university of colorado and i became aware of the internet it had been around for a few years but i hadn't myself i was suddenly required to post documents on eric uh, educational database and things like that and uh, it also uh, just so happened that that year council travel which had a publishing subsidiary. And they used to publish these guidebooks, which I kept in my study abroad office. And in those days at the beginning of the internet or pre-internet, students would come in the office. They'd look through these huge catalogs for hours. They'd write down addresses and phone numbers, contact organizations. Uh, Those organizations would mail paper applications and the whole process uh it's a, it's surprising anybody was able to ever go abroad right so the year that council travel got out of that publishing business and quit publishing the volunteer directory and some of these guides was the same moment i became aware of the internet and we actually decided to do go abroad as a service to uh the students the local students there and then it just sort of took off and and uh but we were i was always focused personally, not just on the junior year abroad, but on the life-changing, meaningful experiences that create a global community, that change the individuals who are traveling. And and I think that's always been our focus.
1: I have a question. When you Mm -hmm. started Go Abroad, did you have an office on the second floor in Denver of on like Broadway or Lincoln or yep. right around. First
0: in Broadway, yes.
1: I, above I the, used to work the, there. Above the
0: Hornet. You worked I, where?
1: At uh, in that same building. <laughs> I'm just. Are suddenly you kidding? Re- I'm realizing. I'm thinking about it and realizing. I feel like we've met before, um, and this yeah, was wh- in 2002, 2003. And I worked wow. at a, a company called I2I, and I think we shared offices with you, or were, our office was right next to Go Abroads or something, oh, but I2I crazy. was a, a volunteer tourism organization, so we sent um, a lot of gap year students or college students, but anybody of any age could sign up for these Are volunteer... You talking-
0: Are you talking eye-to-eye Deirdre Bounds? Yes,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. She was the woman who started the company, yeah. Uh
0: So if you want to get even weirder, she actually came to my place in Winter Park when she was coming up with the idea for eye-to-eye and she slept on my couch and we booked the URLs for her (laughs) and we we discussed really the first ideas of online TEFL.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So that Deirdre Bounds is, has been a great friend of mine since she was a stand up comedian.
1: Yeah. I worked at I2I. I just visited
0: her in Harrogate. Yeah. Oh, my goodness.
1: So, and this is how I met my husband because my husband worked at I2I in Leeds in their office. And I worked at I2I uh-huh. in Denver for a number of years. And then I got transferred from the Denver office to the Leeds office um, where uh-huh. I met Matt, who I am now uh-huh. married to. Um, and i to i brought us together and we obviously don't work there anymore, but uh, yeah, right. so it's an important part of our life. And I was thinking as you were talking, I was like, I know, I know you from somewhere. So it was many, many years ago, but we have well, met. I've,
0: I've probably met your husband in their office in oh. the UK.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> he worked there he- for a long time. Yeah, that's so funny. So, yeah. So, Deirdre lives in Harrogate. you stolen
0: your podcast, Grace. I was like, wait,
2: there. hang on a second. You guys can catch up later because I want to get back to work. Sorry.
0: Sorry. Anyway, One
2: of the things, right? So, we, we said earlier, people get into international education on accident. But when you start to dig deeper, there's like the six degrees of separation. Like everybody knows somebody mm-hmm. that knows somebody. So that's mm-hmm. what makes this industry really, really cool to work in, I think. Right. So, I mean, yeah. what an amazing thing, right? I mean, Troy, you and I have known for each other for years. And now it looks like you guys knew each other for 20 years.
0: Um, right, right.
2: But I want to go back to your genesis of Go Abroad. And you, mm-hmm. you refer to it as meaningful travel. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? There's a a lot of study abroad companies out there, a lot of study abroad opportunities that are presented to students. Universities are trying to increase the number of students studying abroad, et cetera. Tell us a little bit more about the meaningful travel piece of it. How do you facilitate it? And what do you see Mm -hmm. outcomes from the experiences that students go uh, using your service? Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I'll tell you when I started in the field, I I probably had a bit of an elitist attitude that if you weren't going for a year, it wasn't a true immersion experience, if you weren't, if you didn't have the prerequisites, if you didn't have the language and so on, I have a different attitude today. And my attitude today is that probably everybody going abroad is having some meaningful uh, experience at some level, even those that are shocked uh, out of their, their beliefs in their And they appear to be having a negative experience. I also believe that short programs uh, can be meaningful. And I believe that going for a degree abroad isn't necessarily meaningful. If you don't gain some acculturation uh, in your experience, if you don't broaden your horizons, if you don't take back things beyond the technical, uh, academic uh, experience, but we are a database of over 10,000 organizations and those organizations vary in how they assess outcomes and and what they do and some obviously are much better than others some are focused on uh, environmental sustainability most are focused a little bit at least on cultural sustainability i think uh, without getting off on a big tangent here we obviously had a Another uh, horrific tragedy in the United States yesterday, I am a huge believer that the United States, if there's any advantage to the United States, if there's anything special about the United States, it's that historically uh, and not without hiccups and hurdles, but we have been able to embrace a variety of attitudes and and absorb uh, a variety of cultural perspectives and I feel like things like this tragedy yesterday requires new voices and uh, and I am a huge believer that international students studying abroad who uh, they either go back to their home country and share the things that they've learned they share new attitudes and new ideas or they stay here in the United States and they add to this new dialogue and present new perspectives because we are so stuck in this in this debate that is not helping us and and nobody can go beyond it we need new voices uh, we need voices from from all genders from from all perspectives from all socioeconomic uh, communities
2: yeah so how do we do that Troy? i mean i think some of that um, understanding or openness is waning in this country. Right? I mean, like you said, we could go on a tangent, but we don't have to. But just talking about study abroad, one of the challenges is to actually get students to go study abroad. Uh, and it's very mm-hmm. anemic, in my opinion, the numbers of students that go study overseas or even short-term experiences. How can we do something? Or what should we do? What
0: should institutions mm-hmm. do differently? Well, I would say you're right. There has been a a negative dialogue, not just in the United States, but in some European countries and some Asian and and Latin American countries that has been backward looking and ethnocentric and, and nationalistic and so on. I will say, however, on a positive note, I believe that during this pandemic, we have had probably one of the greatest shifts in attitudes and values. And I believe that this generation that's going to university now is probably uh more interested in experiences more interested in a global community less interested in a career track less interested in money alone and i think that's uh you know i think that is a is exciting and and hopeful but you're right especially for u.s students studying abroad it's it's still in its infancy but there are advances every day and when i started at the university of colorado at denver in the early 1990s i was the first full-time study abroad guy and i had faculty who said oh that's not going to work here you don't understand these students don't have money they have obligations they've never they're first generation college students and so on Today, that office has a dozen employees and the director is a former U.S. ambassador. So I look at that and say, you know, study abroad is for everyone. It can be accessible to everyone. I used to do a little a little trick when I would visit universities at orientation and things like that, and I would ask the student body to stand up if they intended on studying abroad not if they were thinking or fantasizing, but if they intended. And the majority of students always, and it didn't matter if you were in Mississippi or Idaho or uh, New York, the majority of students would stand up. Uh, the, the end result is that somewhere in the single digits to 10 or 50 percent actually study abroad, but it's not just economics. It's, it's also about the product product was created by faculty and now it's being created for market demands you know i think we we assumed all american students wanted to go to france spain and england and italy so 90 percent of the programs were there and as you know when isa opened a program in korea and the numbers went through the roof students have a lot of things they want to do and a lot of places they want to do But we still have a lot of work to make it accessible uh, for more people.
1: Did I hear correctly that you went on a study abroad when you were a student and that was kind of what changed your life in a way to to lead you down this path? Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it impacted you?
0: Yeah. As a teenager, actually, I volunteered in Latin America and that was probably my first experience. And I just, I, I ended up spending a lot of time, particularly in Central America. And I, I think I was just sort of shocked to learn that there was other perspectives and that things that I thought to be true were not uh, entirely true. It, it changed my life completely. I shudder to think what I might be doing now if I had not had that experience. And you know, when I say we need to make study abroad and volunteer and interning abroad more accessible, for me, it's not simply about populations, races, and demographics. It's about people who don't even have it on their horizon, and and farm kids in the Midwest are one of those populations that need to go and rich uh, kids from new england need to go and i and i think about a lot of the disasters we, we see in the world right now how many would have been avoided had some of those people had some cultural experience abroad and some empathy for other populations so troy you know the the podcast is about destiny
2: benders you know we talk about how people change people's lives and i'm sure you've had a lot of people in your life who have bent your destiny and we would love to hear about that but i also want to make sure we spend some time talking about your personal journey or personal life i know you impact a lot of people so i want to dig into that a little bit deeper but first tell us about people in your life who've changed your trajectory
0: Oh, so many people, teachers and faculty and friends, people abroad, volunteer organizations. I don't know if I could name some very specific people in my life who said, go do this. I think it was a a gradual process. I'll tell you, Go Abroad Foundation I recognized early on that when we were doing relief work after the super typhoon Haiyan in in the Philippines, worst storm in known human history, possibly 15 or 20,000 people died in a very short time. um, I, I knew we didn't have the tools or the expertise to come up with a typhoon. Strength housing or to solve the food chain issues or uh, those sort of things. What I felt like we always were good at was helping a smaller population towards the finish line. You know, it's not in our mission, but it seems to be what we keep doing. And in Ukraine, we have met families at their moment in the ukraine that that very first moment where they realize they're going to be okay or they're going to live or they're going to get out and we've seen them all the way to a home in ireland or spain or italy or austria or whatever and we're still talking to them and we're still working with them to get work and to help their families back home and so on so it might be because that feels the best for me and for us at the Go Abroad Foundation to see these, a smaller population of people uh, to the finish line. I think I went completely off track there on your question. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no,
0: uh, not at all. I think it's it's all
2: in the same vein of, of conversation. But now i was just curious because I see a lot of the work that you do. I saw that you helped the family uh, make home with uh, the Kurtzmans in Barcelona, I see. So, I mean, things like that, and I've I've observed your work from a distance, obviously, not just for go abroad, but the foundation. So I was kind of more curious about some of the personal work that you're doing. I know your kids Mm -hmm. mean a lot, you travel a lot. Mm -hmm. So I want Mm -hmm. you to talk
0: a little bit about that. Sure, so I have eight children, five biological and three adopted it was actually at a go abroad foundation fundraiser in the midwest we did a series of fundraisers uh, and events i believe it was on the women's march tour we took the go abroad rv and our staff and we went to the women's march and we had events along the way and i had a friend uh an old friend who said to me you know you're you're dabbling in with karma or something like that he said the, there's these uh sibling sets in developing countries that never get adopted and it sort of struck me and i went back and i did a little research and and in the case of colombia i don't know that these statistics are exact but it was something like a single child gets adopted 87 of the time if there's two siblings it's down to like 14 percent of the time If there's three siblings it almost never happens and so uh i went to my wife and i said i got this crazy idea and and she said okay and we ended up with three siblings who had refused to their credit to be adopted individually had they agreed to do that they would have been adopted years ago instead from one, two, and five years old, we adopted them at ages 12, 13, 14, and 17, something like that. So and and in their lifetime as orphans, they had never had a single serious inquiry. I, I think had I not worked with orphans in the in Southeast Asia or in Ecuador or in the in the UK or with the the uh, refugee program that probably never would have come across my horizon, and and um, my daughter from Colombia, who four years ago didn't speak a word of English, has just graduated, walking across the stage at Red Rocks Amphitheater, and and she's on her way to to do a degree abroad in Barcelona.
1: That's amazing. And dabbling in karma, did you say, is that what your friend had said to you? You're dabbling in karma. I like that. What comes around goes around, right? I believe Mm -hmm. in that. Do you believe in that as well? And, you know, how does that sort of principle guide you in the things that you do?
0: Uh, I do believe in that. And I believe the ripple effects of this, and especially those of us that are working on the internet or in your case, you're working with students that you see at the beginning of the process and sometimes hear about at the end of the, their experience. What we don't know is the student from India who studies in the United States and then goes back to India and then their children hear the stories about their experience and they go on to do incredible things that were inspired by that, those stories. And that's that's happening generations. Uh, from now so I do believe that and I'm always excited when you have these little rare moments and they're pretty rare but where you meet people abroad and they say oh my god go abroad that that's how I did this thing and it went on to lead to this lifestyle and I thought I was I thought I wanted to be a a insurance claims adjuster and now I'm (laughs) a nutritionist in the village or something like that I don't know if anyone has ever said that in history. I don't think so. I'm pretty sure not. Those are few and far between because there's a million people looking at this every month and they're going on to some percentage of them are going on to do incredible things. This was just a very small catalyst in their experience. I'm so happy and proud and, and blessed to be a part of that, to be one of those little catalysts. And if we can help create more catalysts, great. So looking back, did you say
2: Winnebago, Illinois? Winnebago, Illinois. Yeah. So looking back to your days, early days of Winnebago, does it just feel like a dream?
0: It does feel like a dream. I, I actually w- was on food stamps at one point and when I was a teenager, and, and uh, my dad was a grade school dropout, and I bailed hay and did all of those sort of jobs that you do. And it's, you know... I encounter people who grew up without plumbing and electricity and our faculty now and and things like that. So it, it, it is. I mean, what I would love to see happen is more people who have these experiences go back to those places and say it's possible for you to do this. Every every opera singer was taken to the opera by their uncle or aunt when they were a child or somebody forced them to watch it on TV or listen to it on the radio. And they had that moment. And, um, and I think that in the case of international education, we need those moments and we need more people to go back to their hometowns and their grade schools and say, look, you might not know this even exists, but it's there. And I'm just like you and I did it.
2: Yeah, I agree 100%. And that's what I feel blessed to be able to do all the time when I travel back to India. But I have a question for you around that. So we talk to students about find your passion and you'll never work a day in your life, et cetera, et cetera. What advice would you give somebody as they're discovering their passion? It doesn't have to be a high school kid. It could be a, a working professional, not happy in what they're doing. How
0: do you go about finding your passion? Oh, my goodness. That's a hard one because I I do believe you need to find your passion and be passionate about it. But I also believe that you can develop a career and modify that profession to fit your goals. We have a lot of leaders of industry who are not passionate about the environment or who are not passionate about equality and wages or paternity leave or uh, these other things. So I think you can also be a giant of industry and a bank president and those things that you might not initially feel passionate about, uh, but f- but use your voice in those positions to-, to change those industries and maybe the world. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice, actually.
1: And where do you see yourself going from here? We've talked about what you've accomplished and what the impetus for you, you know, to start your business and and where you've gone with it. But I can't imagine that you're happy with just staying where you are Mm -hmm. and doing, you know, what you've achieved. Mm -hmm. What's next.
0: I want to focus more on impactful opportunities for travel and working more, working more with grassroots organization to do some bigger change. Uh, My daughter My youngest daughter had me go to uh, Malawi and Zambia, and we visited some grade schools where um, you visited the kindergarten class that was being taught outside under the tree. And there were perhaps 400 students in that class, and 200 were boys and 200 were girls. And by the time you got to the sixth grade class, there were 200 boys and there were 10 girls. You see those things and you say, This is a huge issue that only Oprah Winfrey can address or the UN uh, needs, you know, professionals and so on. But when I was there, we visited one woman in a village in Zambia, if I can tell this story. And I videotaped my conversations with her and spent a couple of days with her. And she told me when she was a child in this fishing village, She went around to the neighbor's houses and asked them if they had books and she would borrow their books and read them cover to cover. So she read the 1988 World Almanac over and over and accounting 101 and these cosmopolitan magazines and so on. She told me that she avoided having friends in grade school because um, she was uh, she wanted to be focused on academics. And her father had 80-some siblings because his father had uh, quite a few uh, spouses. And so that was the the system that she grew up in, right? It was generally believed that when girls had their first period, they should leave school. And there were logistical excuses for that. Uh, There were also parents felt like the girls would then, that was the the point at which they should go get married. And they were not malicious in that intent. They felt like child marrying meant that she was now going to have a, have food and have a family and someone to support her and a roof over her head and so on. This woman, however, Miriam, uh, persuaded her mother and father to let her go all the way through high school. And at the last day of school, the the head of the school came to her household and informed the parents that she had scored the highest score on the national exam, which she said was even more devastating because she knew she wasn't going to college. Uh, But through the Africa education program, she was able to go to nursing school and uh, she is now uh, entering medical school. What I gained from that experience was that the parents and the father in particular, He told me he didn't know it was possible. He didn't know it was physically possible, legally possible. He didn't know that a woman had ever done this before, but she became the economic uh, leader of her entire family and her neighborhood. The boys who went on to college, a lot of them end up becoming taxi drivers and motorcycle uh, drivers and and working on the farms and, and vending and things like that. A lot of those women go on to the cities and they become secretaries and teachers and, and nurses that have a greater economic impact. So my experience in Malawi and Zambia said that perhaps the missing piece here is the economic piece for the family, for them to have a re- reward. So I I think the solution, one of the solutions in Malawi is health education reusable pads, things like that, education for the community. But girls go home from grade school and their day starts. They start working and doing chores and stuff. The boys go home and do homework. So the girls also need catch-up time. They need tutoring. They need a center for girls that's safe. And they probably need some nutritional benefit as well so that they can stay focused in school and that's an economic benefit for the family if the girl is being fed one meal a day at school. But then the last piece is the parents need to understand that an educated daughter is much more beneficial to the family than simply handing off her uh, food cost to somebody else. So anyways, I I told you Gold Broad Foundation doesn't have big solutions, but sometimes when you're there and you're faced with it the same way international students in the United States are here and maybe faced with some of the dilemmas that we can't address in our own society, you have a little bit of a different perspective and you see uh, some small missing pieces. I don't know in my lifetime if I'll be able to solve that, but I would like to try. That, that those are the things that I would like to do with the rest of my story. Yeah, it's
2: wonderful, Troy. I mean, yeah, we don't always need big solutions, right? Little solutions sometimes make a bigger impact. Little drops of water make a mighty ocean and all of that, right? I, I admire the work that you do. Hats off. Well, we, we always end our podcast with uh, a series of just a quick fire questions, a little bit lighthearted. I'm always curious. You have some serious, serious beard game. How long did it take for you to grow that? How do you manage that?
0: (laughs) So I was in the Australia outback in a camper van with my children after the super typhoon. I was in the outback and we were in a camper van and I simply didn't shave for a long time. When we returned to civilization in Sydney, we walked into a restaurant and people said things about the cool beard. And for the first time in my children's life, they thought maybe there was something that wasn't, that was not lame about their dad. And now today the beard has more friends than I do, so I can't get rid of it. (laughs) But I will say I have cut off about six inches because I'm on my way to Southeast Asia and uh, it's not quite as popular there. And it's also a little bit hot and humid there. And uh, so...
1: All right. My quick fire question for you. At the beginning, you said you're in Evergreen, Colorado. Is that Mm -hmm. where you live now?
0: Yeah, I live here permanently, but I try to spend my summers abroad uh, with the kids.
1: So where is your favorite place in the world? You you live in Evergreen, but you've got to have, is Evergreen your favorite place? Or do you have somewhere that you love to visit and that's a place you'll maybe always return to?
0: Mm -hmm. So back in the days when I did more media interviews, the one question people always ask is, what's your favorite place on earth? I've been to 100 countries or so. It's it's really an impossible question. Politically, it's not a great question to answer, but it's an impossible question to answer because I spent last summer in Cyprus and Cyprus is beautiful. The food is incredible. The weather is great. Multimillennial history there is incredible. But England and Ireland are incredible for the pub life and the castles and and so on. And Guatemala is incredible for the beauty of the people and the indigenous culture. And Nepal is a postcard, National Geographic photograph, wherever you look and so on. So I, I just have too many places left to go. What I like is when you go someplace and your expectations are skewed or based on Hollywood or something like that. And you get there and you are so surprised. And during COVID Albania was one of the places that I could go. We went and it's an amazing place that I would recommend to anyone. Cool. Any American who goes to Vietnam is usually pleasantly shocked to learn that it's nothing like apocalypse now or platoon or sweaty malaria jungles it's a diverse and beautiful place with a ten thousand year history and and, and temples and um, but i do some- like evergreen colorado as well <laughs> i like we evergreen we've had we've had snow for three days now so
1: Yikes. Yeah. When you said yeah. evergreen, I was like, oh, I like evergreen because I used to, when I lived yeah. in Denver, go out there sometimes. It's a cute little place. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's in the mountains, but it's close enough to the airport.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's
2: important. Yeah. <laughs> that's very yeah. important. Especially the Denver airport being so far out there. So try some you read. Uh, what uh-huh. is a, a book you're reading now or what is a book that you go back to often or one book that you could think of that's like, wow, that was a great book.
0: I read recently two books together. I read *Sapiens* and I read *Everything Is F*—a book about hope—and mm. uh, they're good partner pieces. A couple books that I give to all of my employees are uh, *The Alchemist* and uh, *The Last Lecture*, mm. uh, which is a, which is just a great great book.
1: Sorry, who's the author of the last lecture?
0: The last lecture is Randy. Last name, I think, starts with a T. There was a popular movement where faculty were asked if they were to give one lecture. This was usually in the sciences. What would they include in that lecture? And then universities and some Ivy League schools had professors give that lecture. What's What's your chemical engineering lecture? And this particular gentleman is actually dying And gifts in his book is his last lecture, but it's, it's just good. And it's just general information about what you should value in life. And, and so on without any sort of religious agenda or political agenda.
2: Yeah. Randy posh.
1: I'm going to look at it. Oh, that's it. Okay.
0: Yeah. It was a Carnegie Mellon
2: professor and he was that. Uh, It's amazing. It's absolutely. It's a good book. It's an easy read too, as is the alchemist. Yeah. So does your beard have an Instagram account? <laughs> probably does it need, need one?
0: I think so. Why not? Okay. I'm going to work on that. <laughs> you will be my one and only follower.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Troy, this is great. Uh, I am so appreciative of your time. Thank you for making time to chat with us today.
0: Thanks Fred. for having me. It was a great, it was a great pleasure and what an incredibly small world it is.
1: I know small world I'm gonna tell Matt as soon as we get off I'm gonna run down He'll say, you'll never guess.
2: Uh, but no hey uh, Godspeed to you my friend. Uh, you do some amazing work. We wish you the best uh, I can thank wait. you so much.
1: Join us next week on Destiny Benders. We speak with Lakshmi Oyer, an international education professional based in India.